Welcome to the Smoke and Rope Podcast, the show that brings together Michigan's top cannabis growers, advocates, and business owners to offer a fresh and honest perspective of Michigan's cannabis industry. Stick with us to get the lowdown from the people who have been on the ground floor of cannabis business in Michigan and gain insights into where the industry may be heading. Welcome to the Smoke and Rope Podcast. Today we are on episode 40. It's 40 weeks in a row, and we're super excited to have Carol Seaman, the Ingham County prosecutor of my county, Ingham County, um, where I live, where I grew up, and where my business is. I'm super excited. We all are to have you on. Thank you, Carol, uh, for being on. Thank you. Should I go ahead? <laughs> no, one second. I'm gonna. We appreciate it. We're gonna. I'm gonna introduce uh, Kevin over at, also in Ingham County in Lansing uh, as well uh, at True Cannabis. Kevin, uh, thanks for being on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Look forward to uh, to talking uh, to the prosecutor today. That should be cool. Yeah, yeah. And Tom up in Kalkaska, but a former Ingham County longtime resident. Uh, Tom Beller. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Hey. Good afternoon. Awesome, Got my awesome. winter cap on because it is snowing in Kalkaska. Oh man! Well, I'll be staying down here. So I'm excited. I, I did bring out my my Carol Simon ah! Seaman, Ingham County Prosecutor shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I first met Carol. Uh, started uh, at a lot of the the fundraisers for uh, I guess both of our, of our good friend now Dana Nessel, and um, was listening and and listening to. Uh, did Dana talk about her and then started doing more research and I uh, I've been starting to get a lot involved in a lot of political campaigns and I, I didn't know in 2016 about it I was just kind of I was still on federal probation and you know had had a lot of issues going on and I feel like I just totally lucked out um, uh, through my good buddy uh, Bob Eldori I got to know care a little bit better came to a lot of pro, uh, some of the fun raiders and now my good friend uh, judge Giddings as well um so mm-hmm. um it's an awesome awesome little uh legal mind group and, and have learned so much but um uh, one of the things i was uh really really excited about and i brag about was that uh, carol was the only prosecutor out of 83 in the uh in the state to endorse prop one and uh, I remember when you told me you were going to do that, Carol, I was so excited and it meant, meant so much to us. And I know you did it because it was the right thing to do. And then I've been watching in the news. Um, I, I brag it up. People will ask me, Ryan, do you want to move here? Do you want to move here? And, and I'm like, I, I will not move out of Ingham County because um, uh, of, of my prosecutor and because I'm, I won't move out of state because of my attorney general now because I had... Uh, so much uh, PTSD from uh, three or four years in my life where I was getting uh, followed by uh, cops every day, had helicopters every day and, and raids and, and pulled over and shaken down and it really shook me up. And, and now I've, I finally feel like I'm through that and I, I lay a part of a big part of that is being in Ingham County with uh, Carol and also with, uh, with Dana Nessel. So with that, Carol, thank you for being on. We'd love to learn more about uh, how you, how you, uh, you know, early career and how you became prosecutor, and then we can talk about all the cool stuff you're doing. Oh, okay. So I've been a lawyer for 40 years this year. Um, I grew up in Lansing as well. Um, I decided in eighth grade I wanted to be a lawyer, but not because I knew what it meant. Uh, just because I was a girl, and in the 60s, girls were nurses, teachers, secretaries, housewives, and I wanted to do something else, and I was kind of afraid of blood, so I decided that instead of being a doctor, I'd be a lawyer. But that really was the original 
level of my knowledge. I grew up watching Perry Mason, so I knew I'd never be a prosecutor. In fact, I remember when I was in law school in Boston on Beacon Hill making a comment to someone, I could never be a prosecutor. And then about a year and a half, two years later, I was an assistant prosecutor. So I came to it because I originally, when I went to law school, I was going to do civil rights law, especially women's issues, sexual harassment, um, sexual assault. And uh, and then I realized I don't have the attention span for federal lawsuits that can go on for like five years or more. And so I decided to come back to Michigan and I was going to be a public interest lawyer. I wasn't quite sure what that meant, but I'd worked for Perjum as an intern when I was in college. So a public interest research group in Michigan. So I knew I wanted to do cool stuff that benefited people. Um, So how I came to prosecution was um, I started as a law clerk to Judge Giddings. And we were working on a number of really progressive things, for example, arranging for uh, women to have visitations with their children in prison and other things that were um, not typical. And uh, I was watching what was happening on domestic violence cases, and I was doing volunteer work with what was in the Council Against Domestic Assault. So I went to prosecution in 1983 on behalf of domestic violence victims. That's how I decided to come into prosecution. But once I was doing it, and I did it for over 11 years, I realized there were huge disproportionate results, that there were ways that race, different people of different race were being treated, people different economic situations, uh, juveniles. Um, You know, I started seeing real scary patterns when it came to things like driving while license suspended and who ended up, you know, just getting dragged into the system very deeply. Um, So at any rate, I did that for 11 years. I worked a lot in child protection, child abuse, sexual assault, um, and I was really dismayed with the whole system response. You know, and so I decided to leave local, the prosecutor's office and go to state. And I did work with almost every every branch of state government, um, state court administrative office, legislative, um, worked with Prosecuting Attorneys Association, uh, DHHS. Um, uh, and then I realized um, that it was, I really wanted to come back to the local level. That's where you can really impact the most. Um, can I keep talking? Because <laughs> uh, I'll segue to how I became the prosecutor. I never planned to be the elected prosecutor. That was, I, you know, just wasn't on my agenda. But after my predecessor was elect, uh, arrested, um, I started getting people email and calling, texting me and saying, "Are you going to run? Are you going to run?" And I said, "No, no, no." And then, you know, I said, "I just want someone progressive to run." And um, at some point, I realized that had to be me. Um, so I didn't do it because I thought I always wanted to do it. Um, and frankly, it's a really tough job. But it was really important to me that somebody who had the diverse experience, like that I worked, I know the national level issues and I know state level issues, um, and that I want to bring a policy perspective to prosecution. Uh, so I ran in 2016 and I didn't know there were other other ones like me because I'm not, um, there are not many like me in Michigan. There are now a couple who are more attuned to that. But I was fortunate to hook up with some prosecutors from across the United States uh, through Fair and Just Prosecution Network. And now I have a wonderful network of prosecutors in Boston and Chicago and St. Louis and L.A. and San Francisco and Philadelphia and small places like Lansing, where we are all looking at how to change the dynamic of mass incarceration, racism, you know, just inappropriate and unfair sentencing. Man, that's that's great. I didn't know all that, Carol. Um, 
Like I said, that's a lot of times, and I, I, I'll quote my, my buddy uh, Bob Beldori is like a lot of times, uh, sometimes the people that make it to prosecutor or judge aren't the ones that, that you want, and that's the exact opposite. Is uh, you know, it's the people that are not necessarily dreaming of it and wanting to do that. So I'm um, excited that you got reelected again, 2020, and uh, was worried there for a second when you said you might not run, but uh, it sounded like the first time you had to do it. Yeah. You had to do yeah. it. So could you tell me, uh, it was like a lot of uh, our listeners are in the cannabis uh, industry, and they uh, a lot of decision makers, a lot of license holders, and um, would love to hear about like why you decided to come out in favor of Prop 1, and you were the only prosecutor out of 83. That's super, super significant. Well, you know, first of all, I do try um, to not, you know, uh, go against what the other prosecutors are doing by and large. Like, we're a pretty congenial group, even though we have very disparate views. I'm on the board now. So generally, when the board's taken a position, I don't actively take one that's opposing that. But um, I actually was with Josh uh, and, and, and at the time that I learned that some of my fellow prosecutors were putting out just incorrect information. And that disturbed me. So I originally, I came out because I uh, felt that it was really important that there be appropriate and legitimate information and not just scare tactics. Um, if there had been a balanced perspective um, presented, I might not have done that. But I felt that it was important that someone said, wait a second, that's not what's really going on. No, that was that was huge for us because, you know, as you know, and all of us were heavily involved in the Prop 1 campaign and the journey that began for some of us, you know, a decade, 11 years ago to get to that point and just to have a prosecutor actually believe in us. And now we have Karen McDonald and Eli, uh, Ellie Savat. I always say that, that his name wrong Ellie too. Savitt, yeah. uh, Ellie Savat. So it's, it's happening. You're getting some more allies and, uh, yeah. um, it, it's awesome to see, but what could you talk about? Um, since prop one passed, uh, in Ingram County, your County, like, What's been your approach on cannabis, cannabis arrests, and have you seen any negative consequences or, or positive consequences of what's happened? Well, you know, we're still sorting through what it really is going to look like. The, the Ingham County had diverted a lot of cases since going back to the 70s. So on just low-level possession use kinds of cases, my, my feeling, my thought, I might be wrong, was that we didn't have a lot of those that went um, moved forward. But we certainly had the possession intent to deliver and some of the others. Um, and so that, you know, I, I think that's really changed, um, uh, hopefully, the culture. Um, there is, a, right now, it's been black market problems, so some violence uh, related to people who are dealing, still dealing marijuana on the side that I hope as the legitimate retailers are, are becoming, um, you know, more uh, organized that that will end because that is a, a downside. And there's been a small increase in people driving under the influence. Not, I mean, we always had people who did that and that's, you know, wrong, just like driving under the influence of alcohol or anything else's. So, but overall, I haven't really heard of any problems locally. Now, people, there are 
other prosecutors who are very much highlighting the difficulties they're having, and I honestly don't know if that's a, a bias on their part or if there really are additional problems. And some prosecutors are also their civil counsel, and they're involved with the licensing process. My feeling has always been that, um, you know, there's Laura, there's the city attorney, that this is not something that the elected county prosecutor, I'm not a business or a, um, a municipal attorney. Um, so that, I think, has been a different issue in different places. Um, that I have not seen here. So we're looking at a variety of things, and one will be, and I think you guys will be helpful with this, is going back, you know, with certainly expungement issues, but um, also with people who are serving sentences, um, long sentences for other drugs, not just marijuana, is saying, are these sentences just disproportionate? Um, I, we don't have a statute that allows the prosecutor to reopen the case and do a second chance review. Some states do. We may. So I'm starting the process mostly with life without parole for murder cases, but I'm also looking at a couple long, set, very long sentences for drug cases that just don't make sense. So there are a lot of things that we have in the works that are just like little pieces that we're hoping to pull together that will give us a more fair response on the overall drug um, process. The other thing we're looking at is, uh, well, two things involving charging. Um, one is we're looking at uh, Baltimore's, a number of jurisdictions, as you probably know, have made decisions just not to charge say, use amounts of cocaine, heroin, um, even, you know, meth and some other things. Uh, we have done co use amounts of cocaine and uh, marijuana for years. Uh, well, cocaine just in the last year, uh, sending that to diversion. But looking at declination or denying warrants in certain situations, if that looks like that is a public safety um you know, promotes the public safety, which it's think it's looking like it might. Um, so that's one thing. And the other is trying to reduce the police contacts. Uh, it's primary because of the, frankly, the, the police brutality and the killing of black people. But those low-level stops for taillights out, dangling ornaments, um, you know, no license plate light. Um, there are often uh, reasons to stop someone because it's suspected they have a gun or drugs. So I want to reduce those as well. And so we're working on a policy and, you know, trying to get input from the police, too. You know, it's like, you know, where where's public safety really at risk and where are we make are you making stops for loud exhaust or other things that maybe are more that you think there's something else going on? There's not a reasonable suspicion that should lead to a legitimate stop. So. Hey, Carol, it's Kevin over at True Cannabis. Um, talk to us a little bit about, um, you had mentioned earlier a little bit about, uh, you know, having the, the board of prosecutors that, that convenes and, and discuss uh, things. And you were one of the only ones that, that supported Prop 1. Um, and then there's some other times, uh, you know, especially before we had uh, legal marijuana in Michigan, that um, we had counties that would um, really prosecute hard uh, marijuana prosecutions. Uh, uh, or, uh, arrests and then in in somewhere like living or Ingham County uh, there was less of that how how is that determined and and what authority does a local uh, prosecutor have is there an authority above them that that sometimes dictates policy or, or how does that work because I'm not familiar 
Sure, and it's different from state to state. So, for example, you may remember that um, uh, down in Florida, Aramis Ayena, um, who was a very pro- uh, uh, progressive prosecutor, she did not run for re-election. There's another very progressive prosecutor who did. She tried. She said, "I'm not going to uh, impose the death penalty. I'm not going to seek death penalty on cases." Well, she's a state's attorney, and they have states' attorneys in Florida. So the governor had control. Some places have district attorneys, where they actually have like a district system and. It is, so it's varied from state to state. We have elected pro- county-level prosecutors who are all autonomous. We're only answerable to our voters. Now, certainly we get attorney grievances or we could be, you know, uh, removed for malfeasance or something. But otherwise, there's no, like, the AG is not um, my boss um, or the city attorney. We all are autonomous. We try to work together as well as we can. Um, but each prosecutor does you usually uh, try to reflect their constituency and their community. So if you're in Cass County or, you know, somewhere else, you're going to have a different result than you would here in Ingham County. If you're in Kent County or Wayne County, you know, it really uh, but the prosec- we have a great deal of discretion. Um, you know, we have to follow the law, but within the law, there's a lot of decision making about what to charge, um, what kind of plea offers to give, what kinds of alternatives to propose for, say, like a specialty court or a diversion. Um, and it is pretty much um, within that individual prosecutor's discretion. That's an interesting process. Um, uh, it's It seems like... Um, you know, uh, in some cases, you might find some uh, some situations where people feel like they may have been unfairly treated because of the area they live in. So that's, that's very interesting and, and enlightening. Yeah, it used to be a joke. I mean, and, and I think, but it literally happened back when I was an assistant in the 1980s. Um, Waverly, Waverly is the line between Eaton County and Ingham County. And while a crime that's committed within one mile of the county line can be charged in either county, there literally were people who would like try to crawl across uh, Waverly to get into Ingham County because they thought that meant, you know, that they would they would be treated differently. So it is true that where you are, especially the predisposition of the judge or the prosecutor, um, the kinds of crimes that they take most seriously. Um, so, for example, in the 80s, I had a hard time getting the police to take domestic violence seriously. That's thankfully, it seems to have changed. But so it really is reflected of the individual prosecutor. And it is why it is very important for people to really pay attention to who their prosecutor is. It's so refreshing to hear that, you know, that we have progressive prosecutors seems to be kind of a unicorn situation in Michigan, but uh, it sounds like you're also seeing more of an increase in uh, progressive um, prosecutors coming, um, you know, coming into uh, positions in uh, around the country and even in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's nice to, to know that people are looking at things like, you know, harm reduction issues, uh, mm-hmm. where we start treating situations not always as a criminal justice situation, but as a possible public health issue or a mental health issue or something uh what are you seeing in uh what do you see out there like is there a trend towards uh approaching um these situations differently uh, maybe bringing in healthcare workers instead of um police into certain situations and how do they d- decide where they draw the line 
when they approach these things? Yeah, I think so. First of all, you know, there are um, harm reduction. When we're talking about drugs. Um, it, I, you know, there's quite a number of us who believe that it is a public health issue, and we're very fortunate in Ingham County that our public health director is also very progressive. So she sees racism as a public health issue and drugs as a public health issue. And I would say she would say, you know, gun violence is a public health issue. So these are things that you have a different approach. Um, I was fortunate to go with Fair and Just Prosecution to Portugal two years ago where they decriminalized all drugs back, uh, I mean, you know, in the late 1980s, I think. It's not that it's legal, but they don't have criminal remedies. So it really is a medical approach. You have people who, um, and we met them, who are heroin addicts. They go get their heroin every day, but they also can hold down a job and take care of their kids because they're not chasing the scream, right? You guys probably read that book. They're not constantly looking for the next fix. They're able to be contributing members of society and, you know, and drug and they and not everyone. I mean, with harm reduction, not everyone is going to ever go to abstinence. And when it comes to something like marijuana, um, you know, it's like we tried abstinence with uh, alcohol and with marijuana. And how did it work? Right. Because people like to feel good and certain substances make people feel good. Um, what we try to do avoid is harm, you know, is someone driving dangerously, is someone assaulting someone or hurting someone or neglecting their child. Those are when I think someone's drug use kind of intersects more with the rest of the systems. But otherwise, really, um, you know, I, I'd like to say, say, let's keep us out of it as much as possible, because it really doesn't. It's not protecting what what comes out of the drug use that's so dangerous is often the illegal sale of it. And then when the guns and the gangs and things are involved, that's not the drugs themselves necessarily. And I'm not personally a drug proponent, um, but I also realize that there are many different perspectives. And when we're looking at safety, let's really look at whether we've created the unsafe situations through our criminal justice system. That's, that's, that's right on Carol. Like it's, I tell people, Oh, Sorry, got excited. I tell people uh, all the time, like uh, they say, you talk about Mexico and all the the Mexican, you know, marijuana, that the cannabis that's been over the years and uh, how they built up the cartels. We, the United States now exports way more cannabis to Mexico than they take. And the cartels have gotten out of it because of prohibition. And same thing if we've made coffee illegal or caffeine illegal, I'm sure we'd have uh, uh, them getting involved in that. But yeah, actually, I was going to, I wanted to ask you about the uh, the fair and just prosecution. I've been following, you know, you, you speak, you went and sp- uh, hosted at NYU and you mentioned Portugal. And I was going to ask you if you guys had talked about that, but you, obviously you went there and I've been talking about Portugal for a long time as a, as a way. And one of the responses I get, and I just am flabbergasted by it and um is like well united americans are different and we're a bigger country and we're different than portugal and it just like never made sense to me we're all human so what would you say to somebody you've been there you saw what it worked what and what would you say about that well, first of all, it was really interesting because we went both to Berlin and to Lisbon. Um, first of all, I'd say Portugal is ten million, about 10 million people. It's about the same size as Michigan. OK, so, the, you know, certainly the United States is bigger. But um, uh, 
the different states in Germany all have a little different perspective on how they treat drug use. But for example, we went to safe injection sites in Berlin as well. Um, it's not decriminalized, but it's kind of look, you know, people look the other way. They have places where people can go and they use clean. They have like a kit, you know, where they have clean uh, wipes and they have citric acid and they have clean needles. They have oxygen available. If there's an OD, they do have Narcan, but apparently if you get someone to oxygen quick enough, you don't even use the Narcan. They have different... Um, 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 they're just, it's a harm reduction. Uh, and in Lisbon, we had the privilege of meeting the, the doctor who actually uh, started the decriminalization effort. He's amazing. I mean, you know, he's still very active in this. Um, and so, you know, we, there have been prosecutors in Michigan, who I mean, in the United States, who've talked about, de- um, and, you know, you probably know that Toronto and Vancouver have safe injection sites. Uh, uh, the prosecutor in Seattle, uh, Dan Satterberg, has been talking about that, but there's a lot of pushback. Uh, in Philadelphia, Larry Krasner um, really has been actively working on doing safe injection sites, but I believe there's led, um, been litigation that uh, fed, uh, under Trump's administration that um, did not that precluded that. So it's something that I think is when it happens, there are a lot of people who are poised. Um, I've talked to Linda Vale about it. I'm like I said, you know, while I'm not a fan of um, of drugs per se, I am a fan of people being safe and uh, and not using drugs that are tainted and being able to hold a job and live someplace and take care of the kids. And if we deal with these problems, not necessarily problems, if we deal what we now perceive as a problem and acknowledge that not everybody is going to stop using drugs, then we have to say, how? well, what can we do next now that keeps our community safe and does not uh, stigmatize this person unduly for something that really isn't um, um shouldn't be a criminal justice issue. If someone is self-medicating and is truly unhappy and using drugs because they're trying to medicate their their mental illness or medicate their deep unhappiness, then there might then there, I think we need to get people involved who can help them leave their drug usage if that's what they're seeking. Yeah, Carol, I, I think it's it's really refreshing to hear you um, talk in the manner in, in which you're talking about these these things. Um, obviously, you're not a drug user. You don't take that personally. <laughs> you're learning this um, on your own accord to try to relate to the people around you out of empathy and trying to do the right thing. And I and I think it's really cool to hear you you, you talk about these things that way. Um, and uh, I, I commend you for 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 ha- for taking that approach. I think it's it's really cool. Um, I did have a question though. Um, as far as your your position as a prosecutor, um, you can advocate for 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 rule changes uh, or law changes. But how far does that go? So, do you have direct access to House reps and senators that write laws, or do they have a form in which you're allowed to um, you know advocate for certain things? How, how does that work? Well, there's nothing that precludes me as an, any individual. You know, I could put a car, do a card, go to a committee hearing. It's a little different now with COVID, but they're still doing committee hearings. Um, but we also, there is a legislative committee through the Prosecuting Attorneys Association. I'm not on it. I'm on Victim Services and Corrections Committees. Um, and they take positions. And I have been invited to testify a couple times. I haven't been able to. I do talk with legislators. Um, I've talked to Sarah Anthony recently just about general prioritizing of different kinds 
terms of, I mean, she is, she's a, a local representative and I have an um, appointment to talk with the Detroit area representative in the near future who approached me to talk about a couple different uh, areas that she thought I might have some insight on. Like I said, I generally am not going to take a position that is um, at least, uh, you know, active advocacy against what the Prosecuting Attorneys Association has um a standing for because I have great regard for the process but I also they know I mean they elected me to the board knowing that I'm a progressive prosecutor and knowing that that's an important voice to have on the board um, so we hopefully um, do impact our thought processes um, but I can you know I, I can as I did with the marijuana legalization could um, conceivably say listen on this issue like for example I don't believe in sentencing juveniles to life without the possibility of parole many of my fellow prosecutors in Michigan are still pursuing that. Um, and I'm clear that I don't pursue that. Uh, and I won't. And I also don't believe in life without the possibility of parole for adults. But, you know, uh, uh, I'm the only one, I'm maybe except maybe Ellie and maybe a Karen who don't support that. That's incredible. Well, I remember uh, um, reading, like I, I keep bringing it up, but you went to you went to NYU uh, on, this, on this case. And then I listened to different podcasts, legal podcasts, Across the country, and uh, they've been talking about your um, the new prosecutor got elected to LA, and, and he's your friend, right? And he used yeah. to be in San Francisco, am I correct? Yeah, that's when I met him. Um, he was a San Francisco prosecutor. Yeah, that's that's cool. So it's it's interesting hearing you say because you're on the cutting edge of prog- progressive uh, prosecution and changing the mindset and the war on drugs and uh, all the institutional racism that goes on with with all of that in the system. Um, connecting with all of them, we've been fortunate um, to start connecting with uh, like people like myself that maybe did time, got out, and got really supercharged and, and advocacy and connecting uh, all across the country too. And we're really proud of that and some of the people uh, that we've met. Um, but what what would you be uh, most proud of so far in your first five years of, of, of office? And what do you think is making the biggest change in, in, in the community's lives around you? Well, it's not, I mean, I can point to one specific thing. What I'm going to say is generally that we're looking at an individual proportionate response to each case. So like whether it's a waiving a juvenile to adult court or whether it's charging someone with first or second degree murder or whatever, um, or whether to charge, what to expand diversion for drugs or retail fraud. It's always going to be about what's the proportionate response for this individual. Our immigration policy, for example, is that we'll consider the collateral consequence of deportation and and if you have someone who stole something from Meyer, potentially being deported is is a real disproportionate outcome, even if they yeah. committed the crime. So always looking for not just like did we have the elements of the crime, but really what is the uh, fair and just and equitable outcome here? How deeply into the system does this person need to potentially be? So that's our thought processes that we're really trying to modify. That's awesome. Yeah, Carol, I read an article uh, prior to our uh, podcast today about you advocating for some changes in policy when it comes to um, uh, driver's license suspensions and drug testing of, of, of people for crimes that had no relation to those particular issues. Um, I remember when I was younger, um, you know, I, I had got caught with some marijuana and, and got my license suspended. 
And then obviously I had to drive. I lived in a small town. I had to drive to a more uh, suburban area to, to work. And, and, you know, it's almost impossible to continue working without a driver's license. Mm -hmm. And then it was one of those things where, you know, I got caught driving without my license and it all spiraled into me spending some time mm -hmm. in jail, um, mm -hmm. all because of issues that had no relation to my driving. Um, and, and, and where are we at on that today? Um, I've obviously not, I've not been in any kind of trouble in 25 years. So I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with where we stand with it today, but are we making some progress in that kind of stuff? Well, I hope so. Um, as a matter of fact, so uh, just over a year ago, um, the governor's task force on jail and pretrial detention published a report with a lot of different recommendations. And the recommendations included things like, let's, you know, we're seeing that retail fraud and driving while license suspended for like not complying with court judgment or, you know, non non dangerous driving things, but technical things. Um, were just the main reason people were in jail. So they recommended legislation and a, some of it went into effect last year. Um, as of April 1st this year, there is now a presumption that for certain kinds of offenses, um, traffic offenses and, and misdemeanors that are not like domestic violence or violent ones, um, that there is just an appearance ticket instead of an arrest or a summons instead of a warrant. So what that means is you're really, you're supposed to be reducing the system exposure, like instead of being picked up when you're stopped for a suspended ops, you would get an appearance ticket um, and be told you have to go to court like you would for a defective equipment or some other kinds of traffic offenses um, so that you don't go to jail. Um, so that's a huge change. Um, uh, so the, we'll see how that plays out. It's only been in effect for a couple of weeks. But that means that, for example, um, we don't arraign, you know, the people are not arrested and arraigned, so hopefully are not spending any time in jail at all. Um, and then that gives us a chance to step back and look at why, what was their reason for suspension? Was it because they, you know, constantly are driving drunk and recklessly and they're suspended for points, which is a different situation, or are they suspended because they couldn't pay the court judgment or they failed to appear in court, which is... Secretary of State had no option but to suspend. I mean, I had talked with Judge Boyd. He's now our, our state court administrator, but at the time was a 55th district judge. And I said, listen, how can we not abstract those to the Secretary of State so they don't they don't become suspensions? And he said that's not there wasn't discretionary at that time. And now it's not going to just automatically happen. So that should be helpful for those kinds of offenses that never should have resulted in people, you know, just automatically going to jail. Yeah, that's that is progress. That's awesome. Um, I feel like we could uh, learn learn from you all day, Carol. I know some of us have a couple of hard outs, and we're really really happy that you came on. Wanted to uh, let uh, let everyone uh, kind of say goodbye, thank you, and uh, any final thoughts. We'll start with uh, Kevin at True Cannabis. Hey, Carol. I just want to thank you for uh, coming on the show today. Um, we appreciate your uh, progressiveness in, in, this, in the position that you're in um, and, and thinking outside of the box and thinking outside of yourself. I think that's what we need from all of our citizens to make this country a little bit better. And, uh, and you're leading the way. And, and so we really appreciate it. And again, thanks for being on the show. Tom, over at Real Leaf. Hey, Prosecutor Seaman, uh, again, thank you so much. Um, we just want to let people out there know that, that in order to, for more progressive prosecutors to get elected, people have to get out and vote, obviously, right? 
And I guess my last question to you is, is there a, are there resources out there when elections come around to find out more information? Because it's not like the, uh, for lack of better terms, sexy position of people are going for elections, you know, uh, but it's a very important, um, a very important position. And it, 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 cha- it has a, the, the possibility to change people's lives. Are there uh, resources out there when people go to the polls to know um, what kind of position that the, the person that they are voting for is taking? Sure. And again, that varies from community to community. But for example, the ACLU does a statewide survey that's very comprehensive. Um, And, you know, whether someone responds or not, um, I did fully. Uh, It's like 16 or 20 questions about all aspects of criminal justice and police actions and sentencing and, you know, everything. Um, And so that's a great resource. They don't endorse, but they provide very detailed information. Legal Women Voters, again, does not endorse, but they provide very detailed information. Um, uh, questionnaires quite often. Um, Last election, not as much. I think it was two or three questions. Um, And then individual locations, we had um, some, uh, like the Unitarian Universalist Church, again, did a really uh, long, extensive one in 2016 that they published that really was philosophical and thoughtful. So um, it varies from your community to community, um, but yeah, there should be information and prosecutors can talk about, not what they do in an individual case, of course, but what their philosophy is. And it's legitimate to say, you know, what do you, what do you think about these things? Get out and vote. <laughs> Very cool. Carol, any, uh, any final thoughts for our listeners? Uh, uh, it's been great having you and listening to you. Um, well, you know, it's it's hard. I, we're in the middle of a really desperate situation right now with police brutality and racism and all the things where there's a uh, gun violence has gone up and there's a big risk of going back to the tough on crime perspective. There's a lot of push some, you know, certain places to do that. So we have to be careful to make sure that we're continuing to move forward to treat these issues as public health issues and to have community responses whenever appropriate and um, and just, you know, be aware that um, with these things going on, it's we, we can't wait till the next election. These are things that we have to take action to say that we have to really support our communities responding to the community issues. That's great. Thank Yeah. Keeping it local and, and making a difference. And um, I just wanted to wrap up and, and say I really uh, what you talked about as far as like the ability for a prosecutor to change lives. I, I got a lot of us got really woken up in 2009 and, and 10. And uh, uh, after Bill Schuette got elected, the change, the change in uh, how uh, marijuana was prosecuted. So we used to we actually literally like would hold our breaths in Oakland County because of Jessica Cooper and uh, Mike Bouchard and try to make it to Detroit. Um, because uh, they were against medical marijuana, and then even the eastern and western districts. Um, I was mm-hmm. I was a legal caregiver, and in the uh, western district, if I had been in the eastern, they 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 wouldn't have done anything because they didn't have uh, they had two bigger fish to fry with the uh, with the other types of cases that the eastern mm-hmm. district faces. So, anybody listening, please uh, go out there, support uh, at the local level, local prosecutors. It's it's getting better and. Uh, uh, we're just so fortunate, and uh, I feel very fortunate to, to live in Ingham County. So thanks again, Carol. Thank you. Yep. And with that, we'll see everybody next week. The Smoke and Rope Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Ryan Basor, the owner of Redemption Cannabis. Have ideas for episode topics or would like to be a guest on the show? 
contact us at ryanb at redemptioncana.com. Thanks for being along for the journey.